You finally decided to learn how to ice skate, so you ordered the essentials every aspiring ice skater needs. A nice pair of blades, a shiny new helmet, and a good set of knee pads. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping, which you put those rewards towards an essential piece of post-skating recovery, a heating pad. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina, who's been writing for 538 and GQ. Michael, we have plenty to talk about. I want to start off with two quick statements first. Everyone, please go vote. Now is the time. It's kind of crunch time. Make sure you know how you can get your ballot in on time, wherever you might be located. I have voted. It felt absolutely amazing and powerful and fantastic. Michael, have you gotten a chance to vote yet? Oh, of course. I voted on Sunday. Uh, I actually waited in line for 90 minutes, which was pretty wild. I never have. That's just completely uh, not something I've ever experienced before, but it was well worth it. Were you dancing on the streets like so many people in various uh, cities across the country, or did you (laughs) keep a more composed public look? I know you're kind of a celebrity, so it could be a, a tricky one for you. Yeah, no, I, there was no dancing from me. No, um, I was uh, staring at my cell phone reading. <laughs> a, <laughs> I was reading actually uh, an old Stephen King profile from the New Yorker on my phone. And I got so- through the whole thing preparing to do battle with me on this podcast i can only presume (laughs) uh michael uh my second uh announcement's a little bit more self-serving i am officially writing my bubble ball book right now guys it is a real i don't want to call it a chore but it's a labor of love it's a daily commitment and i just want to let everybody know it's available on amazon it's available on uh, barnes and noble other places online for pre-order i'm having a great time with it it's going to occupy really probably the next two months of my life so i'm just excited to be able to talk to you about basketball right now michael because it's uh human contact which i don't think i'm going to be having a lot of here uh, as i get through this book process the great news for us though we don't just have to talk about nothing. We don't just have to, uh, you know, make up uh, topics today because a lot happened uh, yesterday, Wednesday, in the NBA. I think no bigger news to me than Daryl Morey heading to the Philadelphia 76ers as their new president of basketball operations. It's still being finalized. Uh, the talks were in the advanced stages last time I checked in, but this thing seems like it's pretty much a done deal. I was going to come up personally with like 20 different questions to ask you about this move because it really did (laughs) uh, catch me by surprise. But I have great news, Michael. Our listener, Nick, did my job for me. He came up with like 63 questions that he wants answered about the Daryl Morey uh, hiring. So I'm just going to read his email and I'm going to get you started there, okay? He says, big changes are coming if Morey joins the Sixers. Other than Ben's Morey to the LA Clippers pipe dream, was this the best landing place for Daryl Morey? Why do you guys think he chose Philly? What do you think, Michael? For me, uh, a Celtics fan, unless Philly's ownership continues to be a, a discombobulated embarrassment and interferes in ways that don't allow Morey to do the Whoa. job to the best of his ability, um, it's a nightmare, honestly. Like I, you know, we spent an episode or two ago just fawning over Maury. I think I said he was the second best GM or something like that. I mean, he's he's top three, top definitely top five without a doubt. 
Um, his track record speaks for itself. He's incredible. So from that perspective, it's it's terrible. But, you know, uh, for me, the basketball journalist, basketball fan, um, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I immediately started to think about what his initial moves would be, whether Simmons and Embiid would be split up. You know, if we w- might see one of those rare superstar for superstar swaps that would break the internet for 72 hours, I think that that's on the table. So it's just, it's it's so interesting to see how he's going to take a team that a lot of people thought were, you know, a title contender last year and, you know, tweak around the margins or, or blow it up or what he's going to do. It's just going to be great to see what happens. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's really intriguing and it's totally surprising to me. I guess I looked at the Philly job to answer Nick's question and I didn't think it was that great of a job. You know, you've got a lot of pieces that don't fit. You're totally capped out. Um, you know, flexibility is going to be tricky. You're going to have to make some serious trades. You know, feelings are going to get hurt along the way. You might have to trade one of your two superstars because they don't fit particularly well together. You're dealing with massive expectations. You've got a new coach um, in Doc Rivers who is accustomed to having a lot of power. That kind of just seemed like a tricky job, and Elton Brand had been there and not done good work at all. I mean, a lot of his bold moves blew up in his face, and a lot of his strategic planning was trying to cut against the grain, and the grain won. So I, I looked at that spot... And just didn't really think Maury would have that much interest in it. I thought he could do better, especially if he waited a year. I thought there would potentially be this huge bidding war for his services. I definitely thought the best teams in the league should be, you know, moving heaven and earth to kind of grab him because GMs like him just don't come along that often. You know, Masai is not going to be moving. Guys like Danny Ainge are locked in. Pat Riley's locked in. I mean, you go right down the list. You just don't see movement from top-level guys. So... I, first of all, I think it's a coup for Philadelphia. I agree that yep. the ownership group is going to now have to look at Daryl and say, he's accustomed to a level of stability and autonomy. We need to make sure he has that same thing here. This can't turn into a situation where you're just kind of like constantly changing the pieces like they have been for the last 10 years. And he's basically exactly what they need. Now, um, I, I do think the reason why this move is so interesting is because Maury and his ideas and his philosophy are so much more interesting than the roster that they currently have assembled, right? Now, everything seems possible. Before they got him, nothing seemed possible. Elton Brand had said, oh, we're going to bring back the two stars. You're going to have the same fit issues. It was going to be really hard to trade guys like Al Horford and Tobias Harris for value. And then Elton Brand's definition of value was, you know, a cause for skepticism, right? Whatever kinds of trades he was going to make, he was probably going to lose because he's been losing trades left and right uh, ever since he got there. (laughs) Now you can kind of picture this scenario where Maury could go one way, building around Ben Simmons, going super fast, you know, super spread, get a spread five, a bunch of three-point shooters run up and down the court, have an exciting team. You could picture him building around Joel Embiid, uh, trying to get a lot of, you know, defensive-minded three and D wings and a new point guard. Now you've got a team that kind of fits a little bit better there. You could even picture him just trading everyone, just hitting the undo button completely, uh, trying to package together as many assets as he can in a total uh, remodel. I could picture that. Kind of everything's on the table. <laughs> I, 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 I could not picture that uh, for the record. Why not? They don't have that many great pieces there, right? I mean, they have like big names for sure. But I personally, if I was taking that job in Maury's position, my uh-huh. mentality on day one would be 
nobody is untradeable. I'm in full assessment mode, and I'm also signing up with AT&T for like five extra <laughs> telephone lines, and I am just texting people trade ideas all day long just to see what I can get because you know they've got some names there. The names don't fit, and with a series of trades, this team could easily look radically different in not that long. I wish that you were the GM of the Philadelphia 76ers is, is basically um, – the conclusion that I have after hearing that statement, I, 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 you know, I, I don't think that that is a zero percent probability that what you just described happens. But I, I'm of the mind that what he's going to do is, I mean, first and foremost, you have to like get rid of the 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 fluff, and that means you know Horford. That means potentially um, upgrading or finding a different type of fit with Tobias Harris. That means, uh, you know, the one, the one thing that's really intriguing to me is the fact that all of a sudden Maury has draft assets in that, I mean, when I say that, I basically just mean his own draft picks <laughs> to move and to play with. Um, so it's just like, there's a lot of options here. I, you know, I said earlier that there could be that rare superstar for superstar swap. Um, you know, I wouldn't bet my life on that, but you know, obviously, the Houston Rockets are probably not going to be great. You know, I think organizationally, based on their head coach hire, Stephen Silas, a first-year uh, head coach, rookie head coach, I don't know if, you know, championship is on their mind right now with the roster that they have. So Harden could be a, a possibility um, at the trade deadline. And you have Simmons, you have Embiid, there could be a swap there. I don't know. I mean, Bradley Beal, there could be a swap there. We don't know. Just like trying to find the right fits with these two stars who I, I personally think that they cannot fit together. But then again, you know, someone would look at that, the success that they've had together, particularly on the offensive end. Um, you know, they could have beaten the, the Toronto Raptors two years ago and then potentially won the championship. So maybe his his mentality, Daryl's mentality is trying to add a piece like Jimmy Butler um, with the draft assets that he has. Uh, you know, I would assume that Matisse Teibel is going to be on the table. Just yeah. So it's it's See, just, you're, like getting my brain, it. you're getting the, it. You're slowly but surely listing off every player on the roster as a possible trade target, which is what I just said two minutes ago well, that everybody should be on uh, should be touchable. And I think that they will be. I actually think it starts a little bit more foundationally than trying to trade the fluff, because I think you're going to have mm-hmm. to attach a lot to the fluff to get rid of it. I think yep. the first task for him is to decide, do I believe in Ben Simmons? Do I believe in Joel Embiid? And do I believe in those guys together? And if you look at his recent track record, he hasn't played centers. And uh, he's had teams that shoot the most threes in the entire league, right? Those are kind of foundational principles. Now, he has used uh, those ideas, kind of come to those ideas because the talent that he had on hand, you could make an argument that he's going to you know, start from scratch philosophically with the group that he has there in Philadelphia. But I still think he's a true believer in the math, right? And if you're not able to get up more three-pointers, if you're not able to play as efficiently as possible, if your two stars don't complement each other directly and cleanly, then what's the point? You know, it doesn't matter how good they look on paper. It's they're going to wind up being uh, disappointments once they get to the playoffs. So to me, the biggest question is, do they trade one of those guys before the start of the season, Simmons or Embiid, or do they give it this weird kind of bite the bullet season to evaluate them and then do it next summer? Personally, again, if it were me, 
I would rip the Band-Aid off. I saw plenty in the bubble. I, that was such a humiliating first-round exit to your Boston Celtics that I would not want to sign back up for any part of that. If it was my decision, I would trade Joel Embiid <laughs> because he's got the most possible trade value. I would try to attach one of the really bad contracts to him in that deal so that I could get a little bit more flexibility, and I would retool this whole thing around Ben Simmons. What do you think of my plan? Uh, I mean, I would probably side with, look, I, I, you know, I think that what he's going to do is at least for the first few months of the season, try to upgrade around Simmons and Embiid. I mean, statistically, we know that they have had success together. And I already brought up, you know, when Jimmy Butler was there, them being a championship contender, um, they just need like the way I look at Maury's philosophy is less that you need to have, uh, you need to shoot, you know, 60% of your shots need to be threes. I don't think that's necessarily his strategy. I think his strategy is more, or his, his philosophy is more, um, we need to take the most efficient shots. Um, so that's why James Harden was isolating as much as he did. That was the numbers said that that was extremely efficient. If Joel Embiid post-ups are incredibly efficient, which they are, um, when he's not, you know, from the mid-range facing in a, in a face-up situation and taking a 16-foot fall away, um, uh, I think that that is something that you invest in, so, and you try to you try. So to, you're going to uh, try to reprogram. It. You're going to try to reprogram Joel Embiid, and then what do you do with Simmons? You're going to say, "Well, we're going to give I, you look, we're going to give you bonus on your allowance if you shoot three pointers," or we're going to say you don't have to worry about the three pointers. All you have to do is try to dunk every possession. What happens if Embiid is standing in the paint there? Inevitably, Embiid's going to want to chuck up three-pointers again. I just don't know if either one of these guys... It's just hard to, to picture like the best version of the players that they're supposed to be coming out anytime soon because we've been waiting and waiting for those guys to come. I don't know. Personally, if I was Sixers ownership, the best reason to sign Daryl Morey is because he's got so much cachet that he can trade anybody on your roster and you won't piss off the fan base, right? Like If Elton Brand trades Joel Embiid, batteries are flying. People are not happy, <laughs> right? Because he's probably not getting a good deal. Daryl Morey trades Joel Embiid. It's like, well, look. Maury trades anybody. He's crazy. He's the trader. He knows what he's doing. He understands assets better than anybody in the league. We're going to get a great package back. The fit's going to work better. You're going to get those kinds of arguments going. So I don't know. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm rooting for fireworks here because I think fireworks are needed for that team to get anywhere meaningful. And I just, it was so miserable to watch them last year. If they try to run this thing back, I will be so disgusted. Well, my whole thing is like, it feels like it was 16 million years ago, but the Jimmy Butler era was pretty recent. And so that team Jimmy was Butler's really... not walking back through that door. No, no, no. I understand that. But my point is that uh, when you have Simmons and you have Joel Embiid, if you are able to add sensible pieces around them, and in my okay. opinion, they do not have those sensible pieces... I think that you can still win a championship. So, like, so for example... Your, your, strat your strategy would be to try to build a big three around these guys. To say, look, you know, the problem isn't one of those two. We believe in those two. If we can get a quality third piece who complements them well enough and then fill out the, the, the margins around that roster. It's something that Maury tried to do a lot in Houston. I'm yep. sure people remember the Chris Bosh... Uh, pursuit the Pau Gasol pursuit I mean kind of the list goes on and on right he was always Jimmy Butler put, Jimmy Jimmy Butler Jimmy, Carmelo Anthony yep yeah for sure and 
it's funny because he really got stuck on with two stars like repeatedly right and he kind of got lucky with pj tucker almost being like you know the star of all role players to, to fill out his big three there and it worked pretty mm-hmm. well for them um so i could see a path towards that i guess the the question there is i mean has elton brand done so much damage with the salary cap sheet that <laughs> getting that third star is like functionally impossible at least here on the short timeline I think, you know, I would I would imagine that Daryl did not take this job unless he was told that his budget is going to be pretty high. And so, you know, the luxury tax is not um, not an enemy and not a barrier. And, you know, buying second round picks, stuff like that is going to be an option and on the table and trading away someone like like Thibel or attaching him to uh, someone like Tobias Harris and trying to get off of the Harris contract um, will be tenable by ownership. So if that is true, then I think that it's a little bit easier to to kind of reshape and retinker around Simmons and Embiid. And then I also think that we haven't mentioned Doc Rivers yet. And look, a lot of the problems that were in Philadelphia over the past umpteen years were cultural and um, about accountability. And that starts with, I mean, I'm not, I don't mean to be so critical of Brett Brown, who I thought did a fine enough job, but, you know, Simmons and Embiid were kind of running the show there and there was very little accountability. So yeah, I think they, if- they had heard enough, right? I mean, they, you know, they heard every story and it worked for a few years and it was time for a new voice. They've got the new mm-hmm. voice. But am I wrong to say that I'll believe in Joel Embiid when he proves it? I mean, is that a unfair stance at this point? Like, you know, he has a lot of... Uh, a lot of disappointing years on his track record, right? And some of them are not his fault because of injury. Some of them are his fault because of conditioning. Some it's more nebulous of like, well, is he not in shape because of injuries? Um, again, I just wonder, is he a Maury player? Harden was out there every single night, barely missed games for like five, six, seven straight years, playing crazy minutes, huge usage. Yeah. Yeah. You could yeah. always yeah. count on him. Is that Embiid? I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean... You know, comparing anyone to the durability of Harden is kind of tough. But then again, I do see your point. Here's why I think it matters. Because I think James Harden is the first love of Daryl Morey's life, right? I mean, this was the guy who made his career, really. I mean, that trade was an A++ for the Rockets. It set them up for a decade straight of winning. It put them in the playoffs almost every single year. It allowed him to do so much more in terms of roster building, pursuing his uh, philosophical goals and everything else. Like they didn't win a title together, but that was such a functional marriage, right? So now this is the rebound relationship for Maury, right? Now he's going over to Philly and he's going to have to settle into a new environment, new players, new coach, everything else. It's going to be just natural for him to seek out the kinds of things that he's accustomed to, that he's used to counting on, that have provided success for him in the past. If I'm him, I look at Embiid and I'm like, well, you know, I don't really know if this is going to work. I'm kind of chasing the ghost of Harden. That's why I love the Harden Harden trade scenarios that you're throwing out, because what better way to replicate Harden (laughs) than the real Harden? (laughs) Yeah, I think that it's just that's it's too it's irresistible to kind of think about. But at the same time, like, I think Maury is probably a little higher on Embiid than you are. I mean... He is, what, he's 25, 26 years old. Uh, You know, the Sixers were, 
you know, thrashed by Boston in the bubble. Embiid's numbers were incredible in that series, and he was pretty much unstoppable as the only guy that Boston was really defending. Um, but so, he couldn't hold up in the fourth quarter. I mean, I I, I understand <laughs> what you're saying, but yeah. I mean, this guy was gassed in the second half of games. They didn't even look close to being a title contender around him. Was he making his teammates better, or was he kind of a one-man show? What was their chemistry like? What was their um, locker room togetherness like? They were on the first plane smoking out of the bubble. We all saw it coming two weeks in advance. I don't know. I'm just, I don't I would be thinking long and hard about trading Joel Embiid if I was Maury. All right, let's get back to some of Nick's questions. I'm just ranting here. Uh, he says, uh, will Maury's hiring help fix ownership's tendency to get overly involved and finally make sense of badly built front office? So in other words, Who's going to rub off on whom, Michael? Will Daryl Morey bring the stability to Philadelphia and convince those owners to chill out? Or will the owners be unable to help themselves and sort of meddle with, you know, or, or stay actively involved with some of the moves like maybe they have with less experienced GMs in that spot and Morey will find people kind of looking over his shoulder in, in maybe a way that he didn't expect. And remember, he got a taste of both in Houston, right? I mean, Leslie Alexander took huge chance on him, step back and let Maury do his thing for a long time. Tillman Fertitta starts showing up and now it's, you know, hallway speeches about how he's going to teach his team to be true winners. And now it's the Russell Westbrook trade and we're going to be gambling. And then now it's, hey, we don't pay the luxury tax basically under any situation. So he's got a little bit, little taste of both there in Houston. How do you think that power dynamic will play out in Philly? And then also, how do you think Maury and Doc will settle in in terms of who's calling shots? Because Doc has been a president himself in the past, and he had a really collaborative relationship in L.A. with um, uh, Lawrence Frank, where you know they were exchanging ideas pretty regularly. Just how do you see that? It's a lot of big egos, a lot of big names uh, in this spot. What do you think? Well, the first thing I'll say is that you know when Maury was with Leslie Alexander in Houston, he was there were mandates. I mean, there was you know you can't tank. That's that's an, and Maury, Maury saw that the path he you know Sam Hinkie was there at the time and the path to getting superstars and winning championships was through the draft. That was the best way to do it, and that was like not an option from his ownership. So he went a different route, collected assets, and then traded for James Harden. Got really lucky. Um, so I think he's, I, I mean, Philadelphia is just a totally different beast. There's so many cooks in the kitchen, as you said. Uh, there's so many voices everybody wants to say. Um, I don't I don't know how it's going to work out. I would imagine that at first they're going to let Maury do what he wants. And then, you know, if Maury, I guess at the end of the day, it's like if Maury were to come to them and say, hey, like, I want to move Joel Embiid for maybe a lesser talented marquee name and like five first round picks or something like that um do they say no what do they do i don't like that's we won't know that until a situation like that happens so it's really tough well, to say this far hopefully out. it happens in like three weeks because you know <laughs> we'll see how, <laughs> we'll see how the nba schedule goes but that's also kind of the enticing part about this hire is if we do wind up being on this really fast track schedule where free agency is like a month from now this is going to be like the ultimate scramble job by maury and the trade the trade uh, and, and phone calls are going to be flying the text messages it could be pretty wild here's a question about all this michael that nick didn't ask as a Boston Celtics fan, you surely realize that Maury 
And Doc Rivers, I believe, overlapped in Boston right at the beginning of Doc's coaching tenure there. Yes, yes. Would you trade Danny Ainge and Brad Stevens for Daryl Morey and Doc Rivers right now? Uh, no, I would not do that. <laughs> Why not? Uh, um, I'm not saying that one is better than the other. This is just kind of one of those... I don't know what it is, what it's the the technical term is called, but basically valuing what you have over what someone else has, even if they're basically equal. Equal. Um, that's kind of how I feel about Danny and Brad, even though they are not um, assets in my possession. But they're two, they're two really good. I was going to uh, say, I think the technical term for that is homerism, but I hear you. It's defensible. <laughs> Look, I, I think there's a strong case Danny's better than Daryl, right? I mean, you can go either way on that, but he's got quite a, a track record of his own hits. Sure. Um, that's that's a difficult one. But getting back real quick to your doc question, um, you know, who knows, again, whether or not he will seek out more power if there's suddenly a power vacuum in Philly that he wants to fill. I, you know, I don't think that that's that would be a wise move on his part. I think Doc Rivers would be exceptional staying in his lane. And if he can get like, I think he'll have a lot on his hands in kind of redeveloping the culture there, assuming that they keep Simmons and Embiid and hold those two guys accountable. I can't say it enough. And then, you know, if Embiid just, it's, I think one of the things that we talk about a lot is Simmons and Simmons shooting. Simmons needs to shoot. Simmons needs to shoot three. Simmons needs to unleash his jump shot when he's open, stand in the corner, etc. I think like the number one thing that I would change about these two players is Joel Embiid can't shoot any more mid-range jumpers. That's like the that's the number one thing that I want to see changed. If that happens, this offense just goes up to a completely different level because he bails out defenses over and over and over again, in part because he's out of shape, I assume, watching him on television. Um, so I think that that's just another intriguing wrinkle here and, and Doc's complimentary value to Maury. For sure. And I also think it's interesting, though, because Doc was kind of getting criticized by a lot of Clippers followers and, and writers analysts because he wasn't following the analytics and the numbers, right? Like he was playing Montrez Harrell, even though he was playing terribly and the lineups were performing poorly with him on the court during the playoffs. He wasn't playing Zubak enough. Like, I wonder, you know, in a different power dynamic, if Maury's the GM of the Clippers, he's looking at all this stuff in real time, that might play out differently, right? There might be like an edict of like, look, you have to do this or we have to do this. This is going to be our path to success. Was there anybody in the Clippers who could kind of get that message through to Doc or did Doc have the final say? I think that will be something that we could track here. I'm with you on the mid-range shooting. This team absolutely needs to cut the fat out. And so um, uh, I would expect that if they do keep MB to be sort of uh, you know one of the very first steps for them. Now, um, one of the questions Nick had here was, will Elton Brand's promise that neither superstar will be traded this year become a moot point? I think on that one, um, whether or not they actually do it, I think, I mean, if your team traded for Daryl Morey, if you were a player, wouldn't you just assume that anybody could be traded the very next day? Like, isn't that sort of his reputation that, that kind of comes with him? I mean, I don't know if he needs to come out and make some sort of a statement if he really is intent on kind of following through with Elton Brand's promise, but, um, you know, if that's the organization's stance for whatever reason, but... I guess if I were a player on that team, I would just assume that I would be traded at a moment's notice. 
If I was a player in the NBA, that's what I would assume. That's what you have to assume. And but if don't I, you think it's a little bit more pronounced with him? I mean, I think they said 77 trades during his tenure in Houston, kind of the second most mm-hmm. during that time period. He's traded all sorts of stars, including Chris Paul, who clearly thought he was blindsided at, at, the, at the moment that that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you go back at, and other just really quick changes of direction with high-profile level players like... I guess if I'm Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, I'm going to be like, hey, thanks, Elton. I'm not going to get traded and be like, wait, wait a minute. Elton Brand told me I was, wasn't supposed to be traded. I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, it's Daryl Morey. Of course I got traded. Yeah. I, no, I see your your point for sure. I, I also think that going back to the question, uh, is Elton's promise that neither superstar would be moved a moot point? Yes, it is a moot point. No one cares what Elton Brand has to say anymore. <laughs> like it's, it's just like no, uh, you wouldn't bring in Daryl Morey if. Um, look, I think that Daryl Morey, if he were to say publicly that he's not trading either guy, uh, the only reason he'd be doing that is to up the value in trade proposals. That's like really the only reason for it. So. No, I mean, no, both guys should feel like they could be traded at any moment. Yeah, he did tell us that Chris Paul wasn't going to be traded in the Instagram comments like two weeks before he traded Chris Paul. So that's a, <laughs> yeah. a very good point. Nick's last question here is is the big one. Does this move return the Sixers to becoming a top three team in the Eastern Conference next season? How much does the combination of Daryl Morey and Doc Rivers' leadership really move the needle for them? So... On this one, um, I will say up front, I am Daryl Morey is my favorite part of the Sixers now by a lot. I would say Ben Simmons is kind of a distant second, and then pretty much everything after that, I'm very meh on all the way around, right? So that part gets me excited because it's like, okay, this this team now has a piece that could be transformative for them. I'm just questioning, is it going to be a short-term transformation, right? Like if I'm, even if you're making the kinds of minor adjustments that you're describing, kind of the smart tweaks and you're keeping the roster the same, to me, they're going to run into the same postseason problems that they had this season, whether it's health, whether it's shot selection, whether it's chemistry, um, whether it's, you know, finding enough offense and whether it's reaching their defensive ceiling with the lineup fits, all that stuff is really, really hard to uh, avoid if they don't make a trade. So I would still have them behind Milwaukee I would still have them behind Boston who I'm crowning as the the Eastern Conference's early favorite Um, them or Miami maybe that starts to get a little bit closer them or Toronto depending on who Toronto loses maybe that starts to get a little bit closer you know but I've also tried to talk myself into this Philly team on paper so many times and been burned every single time that I'm not sure a change in the front office necessarily um, you know shakes up that entire formula unless they really change the core pieces. I mean, look, it's all about the players, right? Like Doc, the upgrade, I guess you could say, from Doc Doc over Brett Brown will have some sort of impact um, on how they play. But like with Maury, it's just him just being named the uh, president of basketball operations does not improve your win total. Um, So I just assume that there will be moves that are made, and it's, it's too soon to say what those are and how that will shape the roster and how that will kind of shape how this team plays basketball next season. Like if they come out next year and they have Al Horford on the team, I'm probably going to be a little worried. Um, so like that'll kind of tell you everything you need to know, but no, I mean, to answer the question, like I have Boston, Milwaukee, I think Miami's going to be really good again. Um, 
Toronto has a lot of questions with their free agents, but I would just say like it's kind of a f- a free flowing like five team battle royal is how I I would look at the Eastern Conference next season, and then everybody else is just gonna. Oh wait, I'm sorry. I want to include Brooklyn. I know that you hate Brooklyn, and I keep forgetting about Brooklyn. But no, if Kevin fair. Durant, it's it's yeah. fair. Like you know, yeah. I would. I'd rather have Brooklyn's roster than Philly's roster. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to win more games, but if I was trying to start and build a championship team, I would much prefer to start with Kevin Durant than whatever I'm dealing with in Philly. Yeah, so I got to include them there, and who knows what that team is going to look like. Um, But yeah, so I guess it's six teams. I'll throw them in with Brooklyn, Milwaukee, Miami, Toronto, uh, pending what they do with Fred Van Vliet, et cetera, and Boston. And yeah, well, I'll tell you this. Brooklyn's another team that should have paid up the money to get Daryl Morey. You know, I mean, come on. Like, <laughs> I love it. I mean, you're going, you know, you're taking a knife to a gunfight in that division with that front office. You've got Danny Ainge, Masai Ujiri, now Daryl Morey, and then Brooklyn's running out what Brooklyn's running out. Oh, man. They, they definitely should have stepped up and paid paid for Daryl Morey. But I digress. Now I'm just taking shots at people for no reason. Can we... um? Shift gears here slightly because there was some news this week. The National Basketball Players Association has been pushing back on the NBA's discussed idea of starting the season on December 22nd. Now, obviously, we raised this issue on our last podcast, Michael. This feels awful fast. This is going to be a quick turnaround. This is going to be a tough sell to the players. And it turned out it was a tough sell to the players. Michelle Roberts told Sham Sharania of The Athletic, Given all that has to be resolved between now and a December 22nd date, factoring that there will be financial risk by a later start date, it defies common sense that it all can be done in time. Our players deserve the right to have some runway so that they can pl- plan for a start that soon. The overwhelming response from the players that I have received to this proposal has been negative. She went on to say that they're analyzing the information. They don't want to feel rushed. She also said that Friday, which is October 30th, that had sort of been this uh, soft deadline date. The NBA wanted to have things in place and an agreement reached. She said uh, she does not view Friday as a drop dead date and that the discussions could continue uh, past that. And uh, she pointed out also that the players had been separated from their communities and their families. They had lived in isolation for months. Uh, Each day in the bubble could have been met with the news that the awful coronavirus had invaded their space and that they were exposed to likely infection. They stayed the course, followed the protocol, and were able to deliver fabulous competition and complete the season. And it has been reported that the efforts generated an additional $1.5 billion of revenue. So she's just making the case here that, look, the players put in an awful lot of uh, time, sweat, energy, stress into the bubble. They deserve a little bit of a chance to catch their breath. Uh, turning around, you know, in I think it would be 73 days uh, between the last game of the finals and the first game of the season, if it started on December 22nd, is asking a lot, awful lot. And that the NBA should consider potentially sacrificing the revenue that they were going to generate with the Christmas start by giving these players a break. What do you make of Michelle Roberts' comments? Is she posturing? Is this a negotiating tool? Is this, um, you know, a sincere thing that the, the players are just going to, you know, be willing to not bend on to, to sacrifice some money out of their pocketbooks to get a little bit more time off. What do you think? I mean, this is why you have a union. I mean, we talked about all the issues with this proposal in our last episode, how it was coming back so soon and the health risks that that could present to the players. And this is just another example of, um, I think, uh, money really dictating the decision-making. You know, I actually... 
uh, talked to Michelle for a different story yesterday, last night. Um, and one general thing she said to me about how she approaches her job is that whenever the NBA says they're going to do something, she analyzes it, details the positive and negative effects, and then uh, transmits that to the players and the executive committee. And I just love that there's pushback here um, for all those reasons in our last episode. And I don't understand why they can't start on Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. Like, what is the big hullabaloo about an extra three weeks? I understand, like, them wanting to play on Christmas and them really attached to that date and it's marquee for the NBA and television ratings, etc. But if LeBron James suffers a season-ending injury uh, in week one because his body is just like, what is going on? Uh, Then you're in trouble as a league long-term. So... I don't I don't see like the problem in bending a little bit at, if you're the league and starting on Martin Luther King's birthday. Yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, look, the difference would just be pushing it off into the summer an extra three weeks and then your um you know, your off season's just gonna be that much shorter next summer, or you have to delay the start of next season to to compensate for it and I'm pretty sure the NBA is not going to want to delay the start of the 2021-2022 season at all. So eventually there's going to be a, a crimp on people's schedule. It's just the the idea, I guess the main debate point now is do you take all of that crimp during uh, you know this offseason or do you push some of it off to next offseason? Um, you know, I do think that their main focus is trying to get the, you know, the NBA finals and the playoffs in the right television time slot to maximize the revenue because ultimately that's where all of this season's revenue or a large majority of it's going to come from. And so I think that's why the the TV networks are pushing so hard for that. I can understand their perspective. Um, we will have to see how this uh, shakes out. And, um, you know, ultimately, like, the NBA seems like it's trying to put a very fine financial point on, like, this is how much it will cost you if you want to wait three weeks. And in general, the players have tried to do what they can to maximize their revenue in the past. And that's part of the reason why they went to the bubble. You know, they weren't excited about going to the bubble, but they realized if they wanted the rest of their paychecks and they wanted to uh, set up the NBA for the most financial success going forward, they would go along with it. So often money talks in these situations. I'm kind of cynically believing it will here again. And I'll just say this. um, the, The start date is a major factor to me. When I first heard December 22nd, it sounded way too early uh, to me, just like it did to the players. But my bigger concern, if I were them, would not necessarily be the start date. It would be the health and safety protocols that are going to govern next season. If they're traveling, what do the arenas look like? What do the travel accommodations look like? How many contacts am I going to have with people who are unrelated to NBA games? What does my typical day look like? I want answers to those questions before we start you know, going through some of these other issues. And I don't want to just have, you know, assurances that here's how it's going to go or, or things like that. I want really firm answers because the upside of the bubble, you know, she mentions the isolation and all of that. The bubble proved to be very safe. It protected the players. Next season, those protections are not going to be there. And there's a wide range of how you could kind of approach how careful you are with this virus. And as we saw during the middle of the World Series with a player testing positive, Positive tests are likely to happen. That could ruin a playoff series. It could ruin a team season. It could ruin somebody's life. You know, it could change their careers. So to me, that would be the top priority, even more so than the start date is what do the health and safety protocols look like? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that we discussed um, 
in our last episode at length. I mean, that's 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 the whole kit and caboodle right there, making sure that all your players are as safe and as healthy as possible physically and mentally. So, I I mean, that should be the priority in all, in all instances. Obviously, money talks. Money is a humongous factor. I just, you know, I... I don't see if I don't see that the world would end um, if you start three weeks later. And I think like is the are the Olympics really that important? Like because I know that that was a factor in in, in ending the regular or ending the the playoffs in time. So no, that's actually a great point. Like I don't think you could start on Martin Luther King Day, play seventy two games, play the whole playoffs, do the play in tournament and still get your players ready for the Olympics. I think that would get crunched, right? You would either have yeah. to like do tons of back-to-backs during the regular season. You'd have to condense the mid-season break that they were talking about. Something would have to give in that scenario. So that would be a, a difference. And I'm sure there's a lot of players who would like to play in the Olympics. Although scheduling around the Olympics when, are we sure there's going to be an Olympics, right? That seems to exactly. be kind of questionable exactly. to me. After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd. American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck. So you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. Well, on this question of health and safety, Michael, you might remember in the last episode, I threw it out to the listeners. What would convince them to go back into an arena as a fan? I was curious, are you and I just living in our own two-person conversation where we're pretty darn paranoid about this coronavirus and maybe everybody else is ready to rock and roll? We got a wide variety of answers. I'm just going to read you a couple of them and you tell me kind of what sticks out, what your takeaways are from this, okay? John in Southern Bohemia writes, Okay, guys, I just got back from a stroll in the colorful autumn woods near my house. Uh, Ben asked about the risk-reward of going to an NBA game. I moved to the Czech Republic 30 years ago, and I have precious little opportunity to see my team. That means I'd now happily go to a game because I'd self-quarantine afterwards. I'm responsible. And because my risk appetite has increased in the interim, whereas in March, I was just simply too scared. The prospect of games in echoey arenas attended by next to no one seems too grim to bear. So heck yes, sign me up. Yago wrote, next year, unless I was one of a hundred people in the entire Chase Center and I was going to get a meet and greet with Steph Curry, that's when I would go. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to relax. I would never travel to another non-local arena. 
Uh, maybe if it was an outdoor court or stadium, I would feel m- more comfortable. But still, I would ask myself why. HD smart televisions are just too good. And Darren wrote, here is my list of things it would take to get me into a building. Social distancing would have to be baked into the experience. The arena seating charts would need to be mapped for six feet of social distancing and all seats in between are removed or barricaded. Uh, Social distancing would also have to be baked into the ticket sale process. A maximum of two members per party would be allowed into the arena to make me safe. COVID would not enter the arena. So that means all fans and arena staff would have to be tested by the NBA or an authorized tested facility before and after the game. No congregating in groups. So there wouldn't be any concession stands. I don't want to have any lines or situations like that. There would have to be strict monitoring of restroom access, allowing people in to go gradually. He continues to say, I can think of 10 other things that would I would need to feel comfortable, but basically I'm personally asking for a bubble and I can't imagine the fan experience will outweigh the cost that it takes to manage the whole thing safely. In other words, there will be no fans. So we got a little bit of a range there, Michael. What's your takeaway from our Open Floor Glow members weighing in on this issue? Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting just how People prioritize different things. I mean... Oh, I forgot. One other. Dan wrote in, as a Bulls fan, you could get me into an arena if Michael Jordan somehow returned and was in prime condition. And Dennis Rodman also returned and was in prime condition. Uh, If it was game seven against LeBron and the Lakers and I was the only fan in the arena, then I would go. So he wants to see a personal viewing of the GOAT debate for his eyes only. And he'll, he'll be willing to go to the United Center... Um, in that scenario. So, like I said, a range of opinions. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I'll start with Dan's. I mean, it's just like you're creating this fantasy uh, uh, situation that would obviously never happen, is physically impossible from happening. Um, so I think that that kind of speaks to where his head is at. And I think that that's basically, that was the majority of of our responses besides besides John um, in the Czech Republic, who I understand his thirst for wanting to see NBA basketball in person. I just kind of disagree with um, whether or not it is worthwhile. And this kind of speaks to the, you know, he's he mentioned how his risk appetite has increased. And that, I just take that as, um, you know, uh, fatigue with, COVID and COVID regulations and how dangerous it can be uh, to yourself, even if you if you want to, you know, self quarantine afterwards for however many weeks, you could still catch it yourself. And that would not be good for anybody. So. um, So, yeah, it's uh, it's there's no right answer except for our answer, which is that, no, you probably shouldn't go to uh, to watch sporting events right now while a pandemic is still raging in this country. Yeah, well, I appreciate everybody emailing in those thoughts. I mean, I do think it still speaks to the people's love of basketball, right? I mean, there are scenarios where you start to get into that rationalization process of like, oh, man, it would be so cool if this, that, and the other thing. But I think that the reality of the virus was pulling a lot of people right back to Earth, right? And, you know, for John in in the Czech Republic, I mean— we have to ask real questions. Could you even fly to the United States right now, John? I mean, maybe. I don't know if we'd let you back out. Unfortunately, things are so tough here. I mean, you might be stuck. You could come to an NBA game and never go home. So, uh, yeah, look, I, I think um, I wasn't completely surprised, but I was, I guess, a little bit heartened by our, our listeners' responses there. All right, Michael, I did want to touch on one other piece of news that came through yesterday. 
the Utah Jazz and Gail Miller, whose family had owned that franchise for 35 years, dating back to 1985, when Larry Miller purchased 50% of the franchise for $8 million, has sold that franchise now 35 years later for $1.66 billion to Ryan Smith, uh, who is a basically the, the co-founder and and face of Qualtrics, a technology company that they sold for $8 billion in 2019. I'm curious, what was your your thought when you saw this news? I believe you and I had discussed way back at the beginning of the pandemic, the possibility that some organizations would be sold. And here's one of the longest tenured, if not the longest tenured ownership group in the NBA, kind of cashing out during this moment, selling the franchise, selling the arena, selling the G League team, and including a triple A AAA baseball team as well. Did this sort of fit with our expectation of uh, how the pandemic could kind of change NBA business? Maybe. I mean, it's just one sale um, for, I guess, I don't know if this was a lower number than people were expecting, a higher number. You know, the Rockets sold for a record $2.2 billion. Uh, to Fertitta recently, I believe that was the most recent sale. Um, Steve Ballmer bought the Clippers for two billion. This was one point six billion, and uh, you know Utah is not—it's not the Rockets. The Rockets have international reach, unlike very few other organizations. And the Clippers are in Los Angeles, etc. Plus, Ballmer is just like basically you know writing checks and can do whatever he wants. Um, so I don't know what if, if this is going to be the start of a trend or anything like that. Um, I do think yeah, that... The price seemed relatively fair when you consider the market, but also he's getting an arena too, right? So that's like no small expense. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I think Ballmer is going to wind up spending probably more than $1.6 on his arena. I mean, we haven't seen the final number on that, but... Um, you know, I think in the bigger markets, the, the costs add up in lots of different ways. It seemed like a pretty good price for him. And then obviously, when you look at the return for the Millers, it seems like a kind of a no brainer. Right, for sure. Um, and, you know, I was doing a tiny bit of research and saw that Gail Miller was the richest person in Utah uh, two years ago. And obviously, that is long before COVID really affected the family business. And so, I, you know, I'm just kind of speculating here, but I do wonder if the timing of this sale coincides with these two really expensive contract extensions that are coming up. Um, oh, obviously, there's a, there's a million other factors in play, of course, when you do something like this and you've owned this team for 35 years and it obviously means so much to you and you want to keep the team in Salt Lake City, which I believe Ryan Smith is, you know, he's from Utah, he's going to do that. But I do think that, you know, if there was a potential situation where they were unable to afford either Donovan, I, I would assume they could afford Donovan, but Donovan, and then there's a risk of losing Rudy as well, someone who they love as an organization. Like maybe if you're Gail Miller, you're kind of like, okay, I could sell right now, um, get $1.6 billion, which is more than my net worth right now or even more than my net worth um, and not really have to deal with disappointing our fans and really heading into a downturn here because the Utah Jazz have been like remarkably steady for like three decades. It's, it's truly incredible. And so, you know, as a small market organization, if they were having financial woes 
right now because of the coronavirus? Like, I, I don't know. I, 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 do you think that that could be a potential factor here? Like a small. I, I, I think. Incident? I think it's no. I think it's a bigger deal than the the contract thing that you're talking about. Because look, I mean, they are icons in Salt Lake City, right? They are incredibly popular. They are considered like stewards of the franchise. They saved the organization multiple times. They kept it as a consistent winner for three decades. It's a major source of pride. It's kind of the only show in town. There are other professional sports there, but this is the biggest deal, right? And so they had to do some layoffs early during the pandemic. And, you know, that, you know, people start asking questions. Well, why are the billionaires, you know, costing people their jobs? Aren't you supposed to be job creators? And there starts to be a little bit of a backlash. The NBA's business could keep taking hits here during the coronavirus. And so do you want to have that as your reputation or do you want to kind of go out on top uh, to a certain degree? And I think that's sort of how she would look at it. Her other primary goal, as you mentioned, was to keep that franchise in Utah. She's not alone there. I think a lot of small market owners saw what happened in Seattle and that's sort of their worst nightmare. If you want to, you know, kiss away 35 years of goodwill, you know, sell that team to a, you know, a hedge fund investor or, you know, a technology guy from the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, and have that guy move your franchise. And now you're the most hated person, you know, in, in the state, right? Your entire reputation is gone. So, of course, she didn't want to do that. And she didn't want that to be her husband's legacy either. So, I think from this standpoint, they found themselves a really well-fitting buyer. I actually interviewed Ryan Smith at his Qualtrics conference in 2019. Nice guy. Um, you know, obviously he's um, pretty shrewd. You know, he's he's got some salesman. He's got some pitch man to him for sure. Um, you know, there's a reason why he built his company into an $8 billion company. Like he's got his, uh, you know, he's got his patter down pat, uh, in other words. But uh, I would say that he has kind of been working himself into this spot. Like he had a uh, an endorsement deal for a while with the Jazz. They were the Jersey Patch sponsors. There was a pre-existing relationship there with the Millers. Um, he is a Jazz fan his entire life. Like this is sort of his dream. So he's kind of living the dream of every diehard basketball fan around the world. You know, you make a billion dollars. What do you do? Oh, I spend it on my favorite team and I, I get to run the thing. And I believe that he's viewing this as a 35-year investment, just like, you know, Gail Miller, uh, you know, just like their tenure. I think he wants to, you know, continue that sort of a legacy of stability and consistent winning and, and all those things. So I think he's going to have much more of a stomach for any, you know, struggles here short term uh, than she would just because of his youth. You know, he is so young and, uh, you know, it would be a new passion project for him. And I think it winds up being, you know, sort of a best case scenario. I know a lot of jazz fans took the news as, you know, pretty hard. It was a pretty sad day for them uh, just because they have really known nothing else during their entire life. And uh, that franchise has been so good for so long that you you just come to expect it. But I think kind of, you know, considering the pandemic, considering the fact that, you know, Gail Miller's, you know, up there in age and and Larry Miller died, I believe like a decade ago already. Um, It was time for a lot of different uh, reasons. And I think that they landed in a good spot. So it's not a, it's not some major win if you're a jazz fan, but I do think it could have been a lot worse. And the best part is you don't have to worry about any rumors of relocation or anything else like that. You don't have to worry about relocation. You also don't have to worry about your team not having enough money to go into the luxury tax and contend and um, re-sign its own players and um, uh, attract free agents with overpays, you know? Like, this guy just sold his business for $8 billion. Um, I have a stat that's kind of random, but not that random, that I want to throw at you really quick, just to kind of put into perspective how awesome the Millers were throughout their reign. Um, 
Guess how many organizations won more basketball games since Larry Miller bought the team? I would say one, maybe. Two? No, two. Is it Spurs and Lakers? It is. Did you look yeah. that up? No, I heard this. Uh, this was bouncing around. But uh, I, I knew it, they were way up there because I had, uh, you know, they made 20 straight uh, playoff appearances. I think the yeah. first two were before Larry Miller got there. Obviously, you know my reverence for John Stockton. I think uh-huh. the the takeaway here for the Millers was just that they knew not to be in the headlines. They knew not to be the face of the organization, right? Look, they are so old school. If you want to talk about kind of the opposite of the modern owner who's out there doing CNBC interviews and trying to take all the credit, wants to be the one who gets the trophy immediately and, you know, uh, you know selfieing pictures with Larry O'Brien, all that kind of stuff. They were the complete opposite. I have so much respect for them. They're never going to get the credit because they don't want it. Um, but yeah, no titles. That, that may stick with some people. Mm-hmm. But number three in wins in a market like Salt Lake City over the course of three decades is ridiculous. It is. There's really no other word for it. It is ridiculous. And I just like speaking personally, I I love the fact that the NBA has like like the marquee franchises that are in cities that only have really one other professional sports team or one draw and like Salt Lake City um you know there's college sports and all that but there's like there's no NFL team or anything um you have Portland, Sacramento, San Antonio like I just love those teams for some reason and so to see one of the uh I guess like this ownership group has been in the league for my entire life, literally, and to see them go is—it's—I don't know what it is, but it's—it's—you it, know—it's not the coolest thing in the world. Yeah, I have a uh, stat for you. Are you ready? Oh, yes, I am. John Stockton, fifteen thousand eight hundred and six <laughs> career assists will never be topped. And again, there's alignment there. Stockton, Sloan. Um, their front office at various points, you know, they, they did change it a little bit, and then ownership. All those people had the same values, the same principles. You knew exactly what the Jazz way was the whole time they owned it. Um, it was, uh, you know, it, it was absolutely a remarkable run. I do want to close with one final question here from my buddy Bruce Michael. I haven't heard from him in a while, but he always has very incisive emails. I'm really curious to uh, hear your thoughts and what he has to say. Here's his take. The word legacy is ruining the NBA. Any conversation that involves this word has become one of the most overdone, ridiculous conversations that talking heads and podcasters use to bait clicks. I get it. People love it. And it creates evergreen content whenever there is a slow news cycle. I should point out here, Michael, I did just refer to the Miller's legacy about 30 seconds ago. So so Bruce has a real point here. He says... It's become a meme at this point that the GOAT debate is the worst debate that you'll hear fake debate shows uh, like First Take take up. So now NBA Twitter and diehards are having weird conversations that basically follow the same mechanical function masked in a different way. For example, I'm so sick of the 2020 title has an asterisk next to it. Seriously, no one will care in 20 years. Stop it. It's a title. Now he's coming for you, Michael. Yeah, now (laughs) now he's coming for you. Mr. Asterisk yourself. He goes on. 
I honestly believe that you and Michael had the most intelligent possible rendition of this debate when you guys were talking about Giannis's legacy and how it might change if he went to Dallas and teamed up with Luka Doncic. On the other hand, I'd love to hear from you and Michael your thoughts on why people are so obsessed about legacies and how things will be perceived in 20 years. My theory is people who love the NBA are in an unhealthy way self-identifying and self-validating their own generation by having legacy debates. They want to believe that they grew up in the most prosperous time in NBA history because for diehard basketball fans, that is how they look back on their generation. In a weird way, if a 25-year-old can convince a 50-year-old that LeBron is better than MJ, they might feel on their own that they're validating this current generation. Why can't we just enjoy basketball in the moment and stop uh, trying to find the meaning of life and contextualizing every single thing that happens? Um, So there's a lot there. I mean, Bruce is reminding me a lot of Kyrie Irving, I believe, who said uh, that uh, comparison is the thief of joy, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And um, he, it sounds like he just wants, you know, independent respect for, for greatness along the way. And we don't necessarily want to uh, be comparing things era to era. Is he right, Michael? Are we too obsessed with legacy? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, pro- probably like as a society and as a sports uh, watching and obsessed culture. Sure. Um, I mean, personally, I don't I don't really take any of this stuff too seriously uh, at all. And so, I mean, I think the word unhealthy is even for the people who do really care. Um, I think that might be a, a stretch just a little bit of a stretch, but, um, look, I mean, it's just fun to talk about, I guess, like when there actually aren't any games taking place. And, you know, in 20 years, people will say like, Luca is the greatest player ever and nobody will remember Michael Jordan and LeBron's fans will have to sit their kids down to watch his 10 part documentary, um, about his career and there'll be arguments and back and forth and all that. So it's just like, it's just a thing that people will do forever. Probably. Um, I do think that it's, there's a pride factor for sure. And you know, my day is better than your day. My era was harder, more complicated, more prosperous, whatever than yours was. Um, and I also think that it's just like familiarity and recency bias and all that stuff. So uh, just don't take it too seriously and you'll be fine, Bruce. Bruce pointed to one possible um, cause of this situation being the availability of information. In other words, we can all look up stats that Michael Jordan was better in this particular year than LeBron James. And that kind of fuels the conversation. I wonder, though, um, if this is actually just a function of how fast our society moves right now and how much demand there is for constant content. I think that, for me, the legacy conversations, especially earlier in my career, would always come after the finals, right? It would be something like, okay, what does this title mean? Let's try to put it into perspective. I find myself doing this more and more now, and I don't particularly like it, where we're sort of like pre-writing the stories, right? What does it mean if this happens? What if it means if that happens? Um, The Giannis uh, going to Dallas thing was a great example that he brought up, but there's all sorts of other ones. One that struck me as particularly ridiculous, Bruce, was before game six of the NBA finals, I was thinking if the Lakers blow the 3-1 lead, the bubble is going to be like the lowest point 
of LeBron's career, right? How can he blow a 3-1 lead against an injury-ravaged Miami Heat team? And, you know, he's going to drop to, what, 3-7 and seven in the finals, and this entire thing is going to have blown up in his face, and the camera crew tracking him around uh, the bubble is going to have all this footage that they're probably never going to use, and it's going to basically be this unspinnable disaster for him, and, and maybe even cuts into the amazing 3-1 comeback he had in 2016. My mind was going all of those places, And the answer, and I'm sure Bruce would tell me this, Michael, the answer was like, hey, bro, just wait until they play game six and see what happens, right? And if they win, you don't have to worry about any of that. It's all complete hot air. And I do think that my personal, uh, you know, approach to these kinds of conversations has changed because I do feel an obligation to the listeners, to the readers to constantly be thinking about these things and presenting interesting ideas and and kind of, uh, you know, diving in as deeply as we possibly can. But I agree. We as a society need to come up for air. We should not be debating LeBron versus Mike every single day. It's probably not the healthiest thing for anybody. And, um, you know, in general, we should be more focused on what's happening as opposed to trying to telegraph what will happen or how it will be perceived or, or everything else. And we should also be less judgmental. You know, I, I do think... Um, you know, even myself, you know, going after Joel Embiid, look, he had a rough run, but maybe I could chill out a little bit and, uh, you know, let him even reach his, uh, his age prime before we write him off completely as a player. So these are all very important takeaways, very important uh, doses of perspective. And Bruce, I can promise you, when Michael and I are back recording another podcast in three days, we will have already forgotten your words of wins- wisdom. That's unfortunately... <laughs> Just how it works. All right, Michael, on that note, I think we've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. Guys, you can find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you get there, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Now, Michael's on Instagram and Twitter at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. On Twitter, at Ben Golliver. As I said at the top of the show, please go vote. Get it done. You'll feel great. Michael told you you'd feel great. I told you you'd feel great. If we both agree on something, that means we're right 100% of the time. There's no way around it. All right, Michael. Uh, Until next week, I will talk to you.